before Jesus, John the Baptist came. Before Jesus showed up on the scene, there was a forerunner known as John the Baptist. For the last two Sundays, we've considered his ministry as he prepared the way for the coming of Christ. And we saw that John came preaching a message of repentance because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He introduces us to Jesus as the bringer of God's kingdom. And of the utmost importance is that we would prepare for Jesus' arrival, specifically by turning away from our sin, turning away from all that dishonors God, turning toward all that honors him. That was John's message as he appeared in the wilderness. And then you'll remember he had a confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees who challenged him. They presented themselves as being ready for baptism. But John, perceiving all things, convicted them by saying, you're not baptized, you're not repenting in the manner that I'm calling for repentance. Their repentance was founded upon something else, and so it wasn't bearing fruit. It was resting in past realities. Ultimately, their repentance was not founded upon an embracing of the Savior. And so any repentance that is not in line with John's prescribed repentance one that first and foremost beholds the glory of Christ and responds in turn because of his coming kingdom, any other repentance brings judgment. That was John's message to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then, verse 13, Jesus appears. John has prepared the way, and now we're told Jesus appears coming from Galilee to John. The first time in Matthew's gospel that he appears as an adult, we've seen him as a child, and now this is just precursory to him beginning his teaching ministry. It is a difficult text. It's one that many of you will be familiar with. Jesus being baptized by John, don't allow the familiarity of this text to hide or to lessen the theological problems that it does present to us. Problems based upon the perceived hierarchy that John has laid out himself. One is coming after me who is greater than I am. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. And as this one appears, the first request he makes of John is that he would baptize Jesus. There is a a disconnect there that we sense. There is also a, a far greater theological problem, namely that Jesus never sinned. John is preaching a baptism of repentance from sin. Jesus never sinned, so how is it then he submits himself to this very baptism? As we think through these issues this morning, as is so often the case, as is so often the case, the theological tensions become the very means by which this text issues a life-giving encouragement. As is so often the case throughout the Bible, as we see tensions within the text, they are not to be avoided, 
But as we probe them and consider them and pray that God would give us grace to understand them, they become the very means by which we are encouraged, edified, and exhorted to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see in this short text is so many theological truths that anticipate the gospel of our salvation, including the fact that Jesus came to obey his Father, that he came to represent sinners, that Jesus came to suffer on our behalf, and that Jesus would one day reign as a risen king. All of those truths sit embedded within this narrative. And in all of them, we find God's pleasure. At the very end of this text, we hear God's voice from heaven. Very rare is this in the gospel that we would hear the voice of God from heaven. One place is in this text. God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And it's important to understand at the very beginning of our study in this text, that God is not simply affirming the historical reality of Jesus' baptism. God is not simply saying, I am pleased that you have been baptized. But rather, this is a theologically loaded statement. God is affirming all of the gospel realities that fall out of this text. All of the theological wanderings that we could probe in this text, God is saying, in those things, I am delighted. I affirm my son because of all of the eternal truths that we see coming out of this text. Now, by way of application, if we find something in Scripture that God is pleased with, it should very quickly become an exhortation that we ourselves would be pleased with those things. Whatever is God's delight should become our delight. Whatever he is pleased in should become our pleasure. So I pray that God would lead us this morning in thinking through how he is pleased with his son, And we would be pleased in like manner. The first reality in which we find God's pleasure in the text is very simply that he is obedient to his father. Jesus appears from Galilee coming to John so as to be baptized by him, verse 13. Understandably, John attempts to prevent the baptism saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? You can sympathize with John here. This is an awkward situation for John to be in. Jesus, I just had a really difficult conversation on your behalf. The Pharisees and the Sadducees have probably stood right there within earshot. Jesus, you're making this really tricky for me. I just told them about you, and I said, I can't carry this guy's sandals And now you're insisting that I baptize you. Jesus insists, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting. 
for us, for you and me, John, to do this together so as to fulfill all righteousness. Now, you can imagine there's an awful lot of discussion as to what exactly Jesus meant when he said it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does he mean by that? We need not overcomplicate the issue very simply. It means it is proper for you and I to do God's will. To fulfill all righteousness within Matthew's gospel carries simply the understanding this is God's will. God intends for this to happen. Matthew's gospel is a very kingdom-orientated gospel. It is the gospel wherein Jesus is most emphatically presented as a king. And so within Matthew's gospel, righteousness carries with it the simple understanding, this is what it is right to do by God. His will is that this should happen. So, as Jesus says, we need to do this. He is very simply presenting himself as an obedient son. Jesus comes obeying the Father, doing the will of the one who sent him. And God has pleasure in that. Don't underestimate the value of Jesus' determination to do the will of the Father. Because in it, your salvation is found. Every single step of Jesus' earthly ministry, he is in exact accord with the will of his Father in heaven. Never once, any minute of any day of his whole earthly life, does he step apart from the will of the Father. He doesn't take a breath that runs contrary to the will of his Father in heaven. Every single thought that Jesus thinks, every single word that he speaks, every act he performs, every teaching he gives, fulfills all righteousness. Not simply here with his baptism, but the whole way through the gospel, Jesus is obeying his Father perfectly. As we fast forward all the way to chapter 17, that is another point within Matthew's gospel where we hear the Father's voice from heaven. And it should be no surprise that he says exactly the same thing. At the point of Jesus' transfiguration, the Father speaks audibly and says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And to emphasize, to draw attention to Jesus' perfect obedience, there he says, Listen to him. Give heed to what this man says, because he is fulfilling all righteousness. And the reason that matters within the economy of the gospel is because Jesus offers himself as a perfect sacrifice. He comes to the cross without blemish. He has his whole earthly life fulfilled all righteousness. And for that reason, he can at that moment function as an acceptable sacrifice for your sin. Anyone can be crucified. But if that person has one second in their life wherein they did not fulfill all righteousness, then their sacrifice on the cross means nothing. It doesn't become a perfect sacrifice for you. 
Or to put it another way, if Jesus had acquiesced to John in this moment, Jesus, this is really, really awkward. Everyone around us knows that it should be you baptizing me and not the other way around. And if Jesus has said, John, you know what? You're right. Let's do that. Then you would not be here this morning. You would not be reconciled with a holy God this morning. We depend on Jesus to fulfill all righteousness that we would be reconciled to a holy God. Now, with all of that said, why might it be that God proclaims in him I am well pleased? The pleasure of God is everywhere in this text. He is proclaiming his pleasure over all of the theological realities that hang off of Jesus' baptism. Not simply the historical fact of the matter, But all of the eternal truths that pertain to the baptism, in those things, God is pleased. So why would God be pleased in the perfect obedience of his son? One thing we might say, as we've been thinking about consistently in the evening services, God is a God who loves his own glory. It is right that we have a self-exalting God. If it were not so, he would not be God. This is not prideful. This is not arrogant. God is God, and so he loves his glory. God will be glorified through the judgment of sinners and the salvation of the saints. On the last day, God will get glory through both. The judgment of sinners and the salvation of saints. He will get more glory through the salvation of the saints. The apex of God's glory on the last day will come through the eternal congregation gathered around the throne of his son, whom he has redeemed through the blood of his son. So it stands to reason that as Jesus begins to tread out his his earthly ministry, and he does so in exact accordance with the Father's will, God delights in it. The first hint of what is going to transpire from this man's life, namely the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in it God is well pleased. Our responsibility is to find our pleasure in Christ's obedience. Leaf through the gospel narratives often. Determined to be someone who is regularly returning to the gospel narrative. Be reading all over the Bible. All of God's word is useful For correction, rebuke, training in righteousness, it's all good. Determined to be someone who is regularly returning to a particular part of the Bible, namely the Gospels. And as you do so, and you see Jesus most clearly there, rejoice in his acts of obedience. Spend time pondering exactly what Jesus said and what he did 
and choose to respond in praise towards your Father in heaven for Jesus fulfilling all righteousness, acknowledging that in so doing, he's paving the way for your salvation. Train your heart by God's grace to delight in the fact that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. That your pleasure would align with God's pleasure. Second reality in which we see God's pleasure this morning, he delights in the representative role of his son. The representative role of his son. John consented and baptized Jesus. Now, We've already acknowledged that he does so in obedience to the Father's will. There is a note of simple obedience here, but we might ponder, we might ask, but why? Why was it the Father's will to baptize his son? Why was it God's intention that John should baptize Jesus and not the other way around? And the short answer is to establish Jesus as the representative head of Israel. Let me explain what I mean by that. In the ancient world, there was a very clear understanding of a very strong relationship between a king and his people. There was a very clear understanding in Jesus' day of a strong bond between a king and his people such that you could speak of one or the other And both parties would be inferred. We do have this kind of thinking today in the way in which we communicate. It's just not as clearly understood. So just by way of example, I might ask you, who who won the swim race? Who won the swimming race? And you might say, America won. And of course, we understand, you don't need to state, America wasn't in the swimming pool. There was one athlete who was representing his country, and there is a connection between the two such that it is entirely meaningful to say America won the race. Or we might say the president intends to go to war. You understand that in that moment, I'm not saying the president is going to walk on to the battlefield. But rather, there is a relationship between him and the people he leads such that inferred is the the nation or the armed forces. They're the ones that will be going into war. We have this, this representative role understood, implied in our conversation, even more so in Jesus's day. It is all the way through the Bible. In fact, you may even just want to read a few Psalms this afternoon And note how many times this relationship is found in the logic of the Psalter. How many times David, as the king, will pray something for him individually. And the very next verse, without missing a beat, he speaks about the benefits being realized for the nation. David will say, God, save me. That's a prayer that is, is, he's praying on his behalf. And that's it. Save me, the king. The very next verse, so that the nation will know the blessings of your salvation. 
because there is a tight connection between the king and his people. Now, with that background, then, you understand that as Jesus presents himself for baptism, he is not doing it because he has sinned. Jesus does not come to John as a sinner. He does not come to John needing to repent. Jesus comes to John sinless and yet identifying himself with sinners. John has preached very clearly, you have to be baptized as an outward reality of your internal transformation of heart, turning away from your sin. That's John's message. Jesus shows up and says, give me that baptism, not because I'm a sinner, not because I need to repent, but because I want to anchor myself to these people. He'll do this time and time again throughout his gospel in the way that he speaks. He will anchor himself to those who he's come to save. Here, at the point of his baptism, he very, very graphically, through the immersion in water and coming up again, he anchors himself to the sinners whom he has come to save. And what will be true from now on within the theology of the gospel is whatever happens to Jesus will happen to his people. This is a wonderful encouragement on which you can meditate this morning. Jesus establishes himself in a representative role for sinners. And he does so fulfilling all righteousness. So just take those two thoughts together and see what that means for you. Jesus obeys perfectly, not simply so at the moment of his death he is an acceptable sacrifice for your sin, but so also to carve out an ocean of righteousness that will be credited to your account. You see, Jesus' fulfilling of all righteousness renders him an acceptable sacrifice, certainly. But as he anchors himself to the people whom he's come to save, now they will be the beneficiaries of his upholding of the law. Stated otherwise, when you put your faith in Christ for salvation, what God does is he credits your account with infinite righteousness that has already been worked out by his son. That is what comes your way in the gospel. Every Lord's Day when we gather, we gather as righteous saints, not having lived a perfectly righteous life in and of ourselves. You know that. But rather that God would proclaim from heaven, in my sons and daughters, I am well pleased. That is the message that God proclaims every single time we gather. Why? Because Jesus established himself as our representative head. And in that we find the pleasure of God. God delights to declare you as righteous. God delights to celebrate your righteousness bestowed upon you from Christ, but it is on you. He delights to celebrate that. He is not begrudging in his celebration of you. 
God does not hold back his praise of you. Again, it brings him glory to celebrate your Christ inherited righteousness. It brings God glory to do so because it, it makes manifest the wonders of the gospel. That you would be counted as righteous only ever brings him glory. And so it is entirely appropriate that you would train your hearts to think upon God's celebration of you in so much as you are found in Christ, knowing that in doing so you are aligning your heart with that in which God finds great pleasure. There are, of course, implications that readily fall out of this as you think about day-to-day training your heart in that which God finds pleasure in, namely the righteousness that Christ carved out and is bestowed to you in the gospel. The biggest hindrance that works against you finding pleasure in this is your pride. Your pride works in such a way that you always want to earn your favor before God. Your pride works in such a way that you do not want your righteousness to exist wholly with Christ, credited to your account by virtue of his death, but in some way to say, God, didn't I do well? Don't you accept me because of what I've done, if not wholly, at least in part? That's our pride. And the implication that would flow out of the fact that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness and established himself as a representative head is that you would be killing your pride. As a Christian, you would make it a priority to put to death your pride and to ever bask in the reality of Christ's righteousness credited to your account. The third reality in which we see God's pleasure is the suffering of his son. The suffering of his son. Jesus is baptized. He comes up from the water and all of a sudden the text takes on a very Trinitarian emphasis. The heavens are opened The Holy Spirit descends upon him, and then God the Father speaks. So this is one of the few texts, at least within the gospel, where we see all three members of the Trinity in view at once. It's a very Trinitarian text. That's why we recited the Nicene Creed this morning, so as to confess afresh our belief in the Trinity. Now, with that being said, the point of the text is not the fact of the Trinity, We can draw some inferences about what we believe concerning God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit from this text. But the point of the text is not to teach us primarily about the Trinity. Rather, the Trinitarian emphasis in the text simply adds more to our understanding of God's affirmation of what's going on. By bringing all three members of the Godhead into view at once, there is an even more emphatic affirmation of everything that's happening here. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in complete agreement as to the the rightness of Jesus' baptism. And particularly noteworthy is what God says, namely, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God speaks, presumably for those around to hear, not just Jesus. He speaks in the third person. This is my beloved son. Other people hearing this. Now we read this morning Isaiah 42. And the reason for that is because there is a very clear allusion in this speech from God back to that portion of the Old Testament. Behold my servant in whom my soul delights, whom I uphold, in whom is my pleasure in whom is all of my delight. God is borrowing from Isaiah's words in his affirmation of the Son. As ever, when we see these references back to the Old Testament, you have to ask why. Why didn't God say it in a different way that did not make a connection back to Isaiah? Why did he say it in this way so as to to form that anchor point in the servant song? Most likely, God is not simply affirming his son, though he certainly is doing that, but he is projecting what will be his son's ministry. The servant songs of Isaiah, 42, 49, 50, and 53, tell us about the ministry that this servant will have. In Isaiah 42, we learn that he'll be meek, humble, Won't raise his voice in the street. Won't crush a broken reed. But that's not the defining mark of the servant theology. As you know, as you go on and you read them together as one complete picture, the defining mark of the servant's ministry will be his suffering. And as Jesus' baptism projects forward to the rest of his earthly life, He's not simply fulfilling all righteousness here, but he will do that as a way of living. As Jesus' baptism projects forward and anticipates his whole earthly life, we understand God's declaration to intimate, if only by way of a hint, Jesus' coming suffering. This is my beloved son who will suffer for the sake of sinners and in him I am well pleased. God is giving his seal of approval on all that Jesus is. Not simply the historical reality of him having been baptized by John, but all of the gospel truths that emerge out of this event including his suffering. And therein, again, we find yet another facet of our salvation. Jesus obeyed perfectly. And it was necessary that he fulfilled a righteousness so at the point of his death on the cross, he would be rendered an acceptable sacrifice to make a payment for sin. Jesus established himself as the representative head, and in so doing, his righteousness is credited to our account. And now as we consider the reality of his suffering, you see that 
part of the gospel narrative wherein Jesus makes a payment for our sin. You see, if all Jesus had done was to establish himself as the representative head, if all he had done, if all he had done was to carve out an ocean of righteousness that would be credited to you, you still stand condemned. Now all of this righteousness is there to your account, but so also is your sin. That hasn't yet been dealt with. At the point of the cross, two things need to happen. You need to deal with your sin. Your debt, infinite as it is, has to be wiped clean. And then you need to be credited with infinite righteousness. There is a twofold exchange at the point of the cross. Jesus makes a payment for your sin and he gives you his righteousness. Both are necessary for you to stand before the Father this morning and to call him Father. So you see, as God says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, intimating the reality of his future suffering, the gospel is coming ever clearer into view. And as God declares his pleasure, Even in the suffering of his son, that must be where our hearts find our pleasure. We are commended to find pleasure in the things in which God finds pleasure. He delights in the mission of his son, he delights in the death of his son on the cross. Because by it, many will be accounted as righteous. And in reality, it is very difficult for you to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus until you've learned to take pleasure in his suffering. In reality, it is very difficult for you to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus until you have learned to take pleasure in his suffering. Suffering. Now the reason I say that is because if you cannot stand the teaching concerning his death, and many could not. Jesus spoke often about his death. Many left him not being able to take in that teaching. If you can't stand that teaching, then you have no place with Christ. His death is not effective for you. You don't get to take the bits of Jesus that you like and leave the rest of it behind. You embrace the biblical Jesus, the whole Christ, including his suffering on the cross. His gruesome and graphic death has to be that which you cast yourself upon so as to have your sins accounted for. And the second you do, you understand the implications You take all of this text together. Jesus has established himself as a representative head. Which means whatever is true of him will become true of his people. You see how this begins to unpack now. God hints at his suffering and Jesus will tell his disciples, take up your cross. Follow after Me, if you want to be my disciples, you must learn the way of suffering also.
So it's very hard for you to be a disciple of Christ. To truly submit your life to his word. And to walk in a genuine path of obedience every day. It is very hard to be a disciple of Christ until you've learned to take pleasure in his suffering. May God give us the grace to look at the man on the cross and say, I delight in him. The last reality in which we see God's pleasure in this wonderful scene is that Jesus' baptism shows how he will one day reign as a king. He's obedient to his father. He is the representative head of sinners. He will one day suffer and he will one day reign And I say that, as some of you have probably already noted, I say that because there is a slight change, a slight deviation from God's quotation of Isaiah, allusion to Isaiah, and what Isaiah himself said. There is a slight deviation. Many of you will have already made a note of it, and it is significant. The prophet Isaiah says... Behold my servant, my chosen one, in whom is all my delight. God says, this is my beloved son. Just a very subtle change, but ever so significant. Not my servant, though he will be that, but my son. The language of sonship throughout the Gospels carries with it a complex matrix of theological ideas. We don't have time to unpack it fully this morning. When you see the language of sonship in the Gospels, it can speak of the familial relationship between a father and a son. It does do that often in John's Gospel. It can also speak not so much with an emphasis on the familial relationship but on a royal relationship. And it does so particularly within Matthew's gospel. There is an Old Testament narrative that you can trace out beginning in Genesis 1 that goes through the scriptures wherein we find positions of royalty being declared as sons. You see it most clearly in 2 Samuel 7 when God gives to David a royal covenant. He establishes the Davidic line as a royal line. David's going to be the king. Every son after him will be the king. And you will be a son to me, says God. The language of sonship from the Old Testament scriptures carries with it a particular note of royalty. And Matthew uses sonship often in that particular way. As God draws from Isaiah here, and yet changes ever so subtly the language of servanthood to sonship, he is bringing into view the reality of Jesus' future reign. He is saying at least two things. This is my son who will suffer, and here is my son who will reign. And in both, I am well pleased. 
or to encapsulate the thought into a single idea, here is my servant king. And we are to find great encouragement in that reality. Reading through the gospel, you understand the time is not now. Jesus didn't come in his first earthly ministry so as to set up his throne to overthrow the Roman government and to reign on behalf of his people. That's not the way this story is going to play out. But he doesn't hesitate to speak about a future reign when he returns. For those that would put their faith in him, he will one day appear as a benevolent, loving, sovereign king. And again, grasp the whole text together. Understand all that is working together in this text and its implications for you. Jesus has established himself as the representative head of those whom he has come to save. What happens to him will happen to them. As Jesus goes to the cross, he plays that out and says, you guys got to pick up your cross. You're in this with me. I've anchored myself to you. So if I'm suffering, it means that will be your path now. But project forward. Go forward to the final horizon of salvation history with your anchoring to Jesus in view and understand that his reign means very good things for you. Namely, you will one day reign with the Lord Jesus. He is coming back, and when he establishes his reign on this earth, you will not be far from him. You will not be far from your Savior. But he will draw you in to feast with him and to reign with him. It is not the Christian's call in this life to reign. The logic of the gospel that we must ever keep before us is that the cross comes before the crown. But the wonderful hope that we have is that Jesus is coming back as a king. And in that day, we will reign with him. And in this, God takes much pleasure. God takes pleasure in the obedience of his son, in his representative role, in his suffering, and in his future reign. May our hearts follow, taking pleasure in the Son as the servant king. Let's pray to close. Father, we praise you this morning for the baptism of the Lord Jesus, that he insisted on fulfilling all righteousness, that he insisted that John would baptize him and in doing so unlocked for us so many theological realities that we can ponder afresh this morning. We see your pleasure in these realities, that Jesus was an obedient son that Jesus was a representative head, that Jesus came to suffer, and that one day he will reign. Lord, you take pleasure in these.
these things. Train our hearts that we would rejoice in them also. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.